Hi, listeners of Crime Scenes and Cupcakes. Allow us to introduce ourselves. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we, we are, are True Crime b and We do a podcast every week. We release on Fridays. And every week we'll bring to you two different true crime stories. First we'll bring you a disturbing story. And then one that will hopefully uplift your spirits a little bit. We'd love to have you listen to our <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so join us every week on Friday. Find us anywhere you find your podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, I don't know anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and also you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime BNB. Did we even mention that we're mom and daughter? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you join our crime family. Bye. Bye. Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals, so please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, there is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. This is part of an interview we shared back in our archives with Sergeant Matthew Lynch from the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Department on the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Department Cold Case Initiative. This is from a year ago, and we were talking about the Jennifer Wilson case. Jennifer Wilson is the Nine of Diamonds in the Kansas cold case playing cards. This is how much more information has come out on her case. If you go into our archives, there was so little information on her case, but her case has gained momentum and traction. And one thing I would like to add, Sergeant Matthew Lynch, His words were not empty. He continued to work on these cases, these cases, these cold cases on the Sedgwick County Cold Case Initiative are gaining momentum and these detectives have not stopped. Sergeant Matthew Lynch has gone on to other podcasts utilizing crowd solve techniques on these cases. He has also appeared on Ashley Flowers' The Deck, discussing the Jennifer Wilson case. And that's something a lot of people say that police departments talk about these cases and forget about them. But I will say, in the Cedric County Sheriff's Department Cold Case Initiative, that has not happened. As you can see, a year later, Jennifer Wilson's case was no more than a woman who was last seen at her home in Cedric County, September of 2002, after a fight with her roommate and left upon her roommate's return. Jennifer was gone, but her car, clothes, and dog remained. That was the information that was on her case a year ago. And as you're listening to this podcast, you can see that that information has changed so much from i think one one question you gave me was uh, i think you used the term um what did you say what did you call true crime nerds um <laughs> yeah. and i know there's a lot of podcasts out there like that i it's it may be frustrating to them because it's there's not a lot of meat on the bone right. for them to dig into and really start evaluating the case so um i don't know that we satisfy their needs but it, it definitely is helping us get this stuff out there and it's keeping it at the forefront of everyone here In our first meeting, Sergeant Lynch from the Cedric County Sheriff's Department apologized to us true crime nerds for not having a lot of quote-unquote 
meat on the bones in the Jennifer Wilson's case because there just wasn't a lot out there media-wise. As you listen to this case, you will see that has now changed. There is a lot of meat on this bone and a lot of opportunity for you true crime nerds to share the information on Jennifer Wilson's case and hopefully get this case solved. If by chance uh, we have someone in Seattle, Washington, who's talking about uh, a homicide in Sedgwick County, then their friends could look on there and be like, oh my gosh, this really is something. We should call them and tell them, hey, this guy's talking about this case here. We kept it pretty basic, um, just as a, so we could get the information out and it'll allow somebody to, to, uh, to locate that information. Well, you're, I think you're speaking of the Jennifer Wilson case. Yes, um, Which right. is a, a no-body case for us. We'd really like yes. to, to locate that. Um, I, I think initially, as somebody who um, came on this job in 1997, it was still at that point pretty much we didn't release a lot. Uh, we might do one or two press releases on the homicide and that'd be it. And we would keep track of that. We would keep track of the newspaper. We would know exactly uh, what information had been released to the public, and we would control that uh, just to the most finite details. Um, so it, it, initially, it's a little difficult. Um, yeah. But I, I think it serves a purpose because um, all your listeners, some of your listeners, will go to this website, and yeah. they may remember something. So it's I, I think it's a necessary thing. I, I, I think it's positive. I think sometimes it can be frustrating for us, but I, I think when you peel away some of that and get get to what meat is on that bone, I think it's, it's worth it. I think it's absolutely worth it. Um, I don't have, it's hard for me to say something negative about people who want to dig deeper into what, what we do and try to help us. Um, and I really think in the in the podcast that I have listened to that that's really what people are trying to do. Um, I don't think we have a lot of people that are listening to these podcasts or conducting themselves doing illegal things to try to get yeah. better by listening to your podcast. So yeah. that's, I think that's always the concern initially is like, oh, are we educating criminals here? Yeah. I, I really don't feel like any of these true crime podcasts. It's a necessary thing. I really feel like for the community and, um, and for the families. And friends, I mean, it's a, yeah. another um, segment of people's, you know, society or circle or s sphere of influence, if you will, that that maybe you don't think about all the time. But friendships and things like that are big, and those relationships come and go over the years. And we are trying to capitalize on some of that. Yeah. And you said that the list could be changing throughout the years. So we do look at other cases that may have had um, other resolutions at times, and we may decide hey, this may actually been a homicide. So there's always the potential for those types of things to happen. We have over the years had cases where it was deemed another cause of death, mm -hmm. and we went back and had to lay and looked at it again later and determined that there was a homicide. Hey, guys. It's Marianne, Dog Mom, Baker, True Crime Podcast Maker, and welcome to another episode of Killers for Breakfast, formerly known as Crime Scene and Cupcakes. Yes, we are still working on that transition. And today's podcast is going to be a little different because we are kicking off June. And June is the onset of Pride Month. And we wanted to discuss something that in the past, it really hasn't received much research or recognition. Now, I will say with many groups that are raising awareness and destigmatizing things that have occurred in the past, things are improving. But don't get me wrong. As a community, we have a long way to go in the support of the LGBTQIA plus community or the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer intersex and asexual and non-binary domestic violence abuse and awareness that we need to raise within that. 
Because of the majority of domestic violence awareness movements, they have been focused on heterosexual relationships. Members of the LGBTQ and transgender plus communities, they have been largely left out of the movement. However, recent research shows that the LGBTQIA plus members, they fall to domestic violence at equal or even higher rates compared to their heterosexual counterparts. And I want to share some statistics from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. You can find these resources and help at https colon backslashes at www.thehotline.org. And it has a quick exit. If you are in a violent situation, they can help you, but they can also help you do it covertly. Now, these are just a few quick statistics about domestic violence and this community. Now, 43.8% of lesbian women and 61.1% of bisexual women have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetime as opposed by 35% of heterosexual women. Now, we aren't trivializing what heterosexual women go through at all. We're just comparatively talking about numbers. Everyone's journey, everyone's trauma is theirs. And we are not trying to take away from anyone's trauma in anyone's situation. Now, 26% of gay men and 37. 3% of bisexual men have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And again, that's compared to 29% of heterosexual men. And that's something that people need to look at. I don't think it's talked about enough that heterosexual men, 29%, of heterosexual men go through this as well. In a study of male same-sex relationships, only 26% of men even call the police for assistance after experiencing near lethal violence. In 2012, fewer than 5% of the LGBTQ survivors of intimate partner violence even sought orders of protection. Transgender victims are 54% more likely to experience intimate partner violence in public compared to those who do not identify as transgender. Bisexual victims are more likely to experience sexual violence compared to people who do not identify as bisexual. The LGBTQ Black African American victims are more likely to experience physical intimate partner violence compared to those who do not identify as Black or African American. LGBTQ White victims are more likely to experience sexual violence compared to those who do not identify as White. LGBTQ victims on public assistance are more likely to experience intimate partner violence compared to those who are not on public assistance. More than half of transgender non-binary 54% experienced some sort of intimate partner violence, including acts involving coercive control and physical harm. Now again, this is information that we took from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And we just wanted to increase awareness during this time. And please say, if you are in crisis, or if you're experiencing domestic violence in any of your relationships, please be aware that there is help out there. 
thehelpline.org is a wonderful resource. There are also resources here in Kansas and internationally. I know we have international listeners and we will have links on our social media. If you need help, there are resources available. You are not alone. Many people have gone through this and they've survived to see the other side. Now in today's case, investigators think that they might have the answer, but they need help from the true crime community to get this victim and her German Shepherd the justice they deserve. Now you guys know me first off, whenever I see a dog involved in a case, I'm in 110%. But this case is so much more than just the dog. This case takes us through domestic violence and the depth of a person's well thought out manipulation and deception to delay the investigation. It takes us through geographical lie detection, pig farms, and at the end of the day, more questions than answers. That's why investigators need the help of the true crime community. They need to know what happened and exactly where it happened. As we know, nothing happens in a vacuum. Someone holds answers to this case, and we're looking for the key. Someone who can answer anything that could give law enforcement an edge to find the victim, Jennifer Wilson. Now again, we're looking at those in the Kansas community with maybe a little help from our friends, Beth and Bailey with True Crime B&B in Georgia. Maybe with your help, we can crack this case and get some answers. Today's case begins at around 6 p.m. on March 29, 2005. Now, I know we said she went missing on September 1, 2002, but the first call comes in at around 6 p.m. March 29, 2005 to the Cedric County Sheriff's Department. They receive a call from a local mom, Paulette Mattingly, and she tells the Sheriff's Office that she believes she's been misled and that her daughter is missing. And of course you take that call and you're like, I'm sorry, what? And yeah, she tells the officers she hasn't heard from her daughter in over 18 months. And again, officers are questioning, well, why would you wait 18 months before making this call? And she states, well, Jennifer was very independent. And she and her daughter, they may have lived in the same town and in the same county, but their lives were very different. They were completely different schedules, and it was really hard for them to get time together. But also there's something more. There's Brenda Leonard, Jennifer's girlfriend. Now, Brenda worked as a bouncer at the club Jezebel's, where both she and Jennifer Wilson worked. That's a gentleman's club. Now, Paulette and Brenda, they got on really, really well. In fact, the last time they spoke, it had been about an argument that Brenda had had with Jennifer. In September of 2002, Brenda had come by Paulette's house in tears. She was sobbing and telling Paulette about an argument she had had with Jennifer. And when she's relaying these facts to Paulette, she says that during this argument, Brenda says she had just become so fed up with Jennifer that she takes Jennifer's car and decides to just leave the house. But when she gets back, Jennifer was gone. Jennifer just upped and left. But one comment had stuck out in Paulette's mind. Jennifer had left behind her beloved German Shepherd. Now, remember that dog we talked about earlier? That's Sadie. And Sadie was still at the house. And when we were reviewing this case, that was a huge red flag. Because when you have a hardcore dog mom just up and leave without any word or anything to anyone, without their fur baby... 
that's a big question. And we've discussed other cases on Twitter. If you follow our Twitter, Crime Scene and Cupcakes or Crime Cakes, where we talk about other cases where someone has gone missing, but they've left their dog behind or their dog was put in their kennel in an abnormal way. Those are always red flags for investigators once they talk to family and they understand what the person's normal behavior is. Because when this strays from the norm, it's a red flag for investigators. But at the time, Brenda had Paulette so enraptured with the story that she was telling, Paulette had missed this red flag. Because Brenda kept stopping by Paulette's home and sharing how much she missed Jennifer. And Jennifer had just upped and left her with the dog and Jennifer's car. And Jennifer had left all of her belongings. Now, Jennifer, if you look at the missing posters, Jennifer always looked beautiful. Her hair was done. Her makeup was gorgeous. Jennifer's a beautiful woman. And I just really find it hard to believe that Jennifer would just leave the house without her car, without her tools. And from those of us who may have been an 80s child or a 90s child, we liked our curling irons and our blow dryers. And I find it hard to believe that Jennifer would just leave those things behind. But Brenda was keeping Paulette enraptured with these stories about how much she missed Jennifer and how distraught she was. So Brenda was playing this role well. She was keeping Paulette always kind of, you know, showing the rabbit over here without, or showing the top hat without the rabbit. And so Paulette didn't really have time to focus on the fact of, huh, wait a minute, this story isn't making sense. Wait a minute, there's something not right here. And Brenda was very smart at doing that. So Paulette didn't have time to think about where was Jennifer because she was so busy consoling Brenda. The woman's mother and Brenda, the girlfriend, it began to dwindle. And the more it would begin to dwindle, the more time Paulette has to think, wait a minute, the stories, they're not sounding correct. Things aren't adding up here. So Brenda makes a mistake. She allows Paulette time to think. Time to ponder what exactly the hell is going on here. Now, Brenda does keep some communication for the big moments. Like Brenda calls Paulette to tell her Sadie had been hit by a car and died. But the calls are becoming less and less frequent. She begins to ghost her, as you will. And then by August of 2003, Brenda's communication completely ceases. Now, Paulette, she continues to try to reach out because Brenda, that's the last possible vestige Paulette has of holding on to her daughter because she's tried to hold on to her daughter. She's trying to find her daughter, but Brenda, that was it. Brenda was the last vestige she had to her daughter. So in a final frantic effort to reach Brenda, she calls Brenda's place of employment. And that's when she finds out some startling news. In mid-March of 2004, Paulette decides to reach out to a mutual friend of Brenda and Jennifer's to see if maybe they have some information about where either Jennifer or Brenda might be. And this friend shares a story that makes her realize that she has no idea of the person Brenda truly is. This friend shares that Brenda has been telling everyone else that Jennifer's not missing and that Paulette herself told Brenda that Jennifer had moved to Kansas City. So Brenda is telling everyone at work and all the friends that will listen that she's been talking to Paulette and Paulette had informed Brenda that Jennifer moved to Kansas City. So she's been covering all of her tracks. 
that's when Paulette was like, she is being really deceptive and she's been lying to everyone. And Paulette decides it's time to contact the police. But she was a little worried because when you're dealing with a missing adult, you're always worried about, will this be taken seriously? Um, you know, she's an adult. She can leave if she wants to. So Paulette was worried. Okay, are they going to look at me and think I'm just some crazy lady? But in this case, the officers 100% agreed with Paulette. There was something seriously wrong here. But the first thing they needed to address was the really clever subterfuge that Brenda had been doing. Brenda had been lying to everybody she had. The only thing that Brenda was 100% on was the fact that she hadn't been telling a true story to anyone. And they were already starting this case way behind. So the investigator's first goal was to go to the source of all of the information, Brenda. Now, that should be fairly easy, right? But nothing in police work ever comes as easy as it does on TV. Brenda no longer lived at the home she shared with Jennifer, and she was no longer working with her previous employer, where she had been working as a bouncer. Now, when it comes to ghosting, Brenda, she's in first place here. But investigators, they know something is wrong. They know they need to get to the bottom of it. And they got to get this figured out. And Brenda's not going to get a free pass. She doesn't get a get out of jail free card. She's not getting a free pass here. They know she's the key to this situation. So investigators decide to step back and take a hard look into Brenda's life. So they take a look at Brenda's life. And they go through everything. What is going on with her? What is the one thing within Brenda's routine that they can figure out? Thanks to Paulette, they come to the bottom of one thing. Brenda has to have dialysis to maintain her health. Now, she might be able to ignore phone calls. She might be able to ignore people. But she cannot ignore her health. Paulette, she was the key in bringing Brenda in because she knew the where, when, and how of her dialysis. She shared this information with the police officers and the officers decided to just kind of join Brenda on one of her appointments. When they met Brenda there, without any coercion, Brenda decided to join the officers to go back to the station and conduct a formal interview with detectives. During this interview, Brenda tells detectives the last time she saw Jennifer, she and Jennifer had gotten into a fight. This was on September of 2002. Now, she dodged all questions about what the fight was actually about. She refused to answer any direct questions on that point. She would only reply that she left their home to drive around and cool off. But again, hold the phone because she's driving around in Jennifer's car. And when she returns, Jennifer's gone. And again, Jennifer's gone, but all of her stuff is there. Her clothing, her makeup, her hair utensils, and again, biggest of all, Sadie her German Shepherd. Now, Brenda said her girlfriend was who she's supposed to love, just upped and vanished, but Brenda went back to living her life as though everything was normal. Well, Brenda's idea of normal, that is. Brenda's idea of normal and ours, it might vary a little bit because investigators also found out that Brenda, at one point, she had stolen Jennifer's identity using her social security number to work at a new job. And she was also using it to receive Jennifer's social security checks. Almost like she knew Jennifer wouldn't notice someone else using her social security number, or maybe she knew Jennifer was somewhere she would never need to use her social security number again. Also, Brenda just couldn't keep her story straight. She told the detectives a completely different story of what happened to Sadie, the beautiful German Shepherd. Remember she had told Paulette Sadie had been hit by a car. 
Well, Brenda shares a completely different story with investigators, but investigators aren't wanting to share and they're keeping that close to the chest. Unfortunately, they weren't able to find out much more because as they were hoping to get to the bottom of this story, Brenda requests an attorney. Her cooperation, it's over. Of course, anytime someone has a sudden desire to stop any questioning or cooperating and request an attorney, it is within their right. A person is innocent until proven guilty. However, it does leave an investigator wondering what information could be missing to bring a young woman home to their mother. Now, investigators did share with Paulette Mattingly that they believed Jennifer Wilson was a victim of foul play. They believed that they were investigating a homicide. But Paulette, being a mom, moms just don't want to believe their children are ever gone, let alone by someone that they comforted in their own home over the last few months. You always want to hold on to hope. And Paulette, she decides to don her own private detective hat. Jennifer had actually been adopted by Paulette, and the last few years prior to Jennifer Wilson going missing, her curiosity into her biological parents and wanting to meet them had increased. Paulette thought it could be a viable possibility that she wanted to meet her birth family, and she had finally tracked them down. So Paulette, decided to track them down herself. And she said it was surprisingly easy. She tracked them down and she sent a bunch of letters and almost all of them replied and none of them had seen or heard from Jennifer. That well was dry. Like Paulette, the sheriff's office was also pulling at an empty well. The searches of the home Brenda and Jennifer shared? Well, however, due to the fact that all of the manipulations by Brenda, the investigators were months behind in this case, and now the home had already had two previous renters. The amount of cleanings, it being torn up, day-to-day -day just wear and tear, it's made evidence collection near impossible. They were convinced something had happened to Jennifer, regardless of all of this. Officers spent the next few months following Jennifer and Brenda's life, interviewing all of their friends and coworkers. They wanted to know their compatibility, their issues, their day-to-day -day living, and they compiled a victimology. Now, several coworkers at Angels, another gentleman's club that they had worked at, they talked about, several co-workers talked about an incident that had happened prior to Jennifer going missing. Surprisingly, actually, the same day of the big fight when Jennifer went missing between Brenda and Jennifer. The fight had grown so loud at the workplace that both women were sent home. Now, no one there recalled exactly what the argument was about but everyone agreed that after that incident, Jennifer never returned to work. When coworkers would ask Brenda what happened, Brenda's response was, we had a fight. I left. When I got back, she was gone. And all the coworkers agreed. Jennifer would never leave Sadie behind. But there was also another concern that the coworkers had, and that was Brenda's reputation. Now, Brenda was a bouncer at a gentleman's club, so it's not really odd to think of her as being a gruff and tough kind of person, maybe a little intimidating. But she was also known as a very jealous person with serious anger issues. One of her former partners had even filed a PFA. A PFA is a protection from abuse here in Kansas. And that partner had filed a PFA against Brenda. A PFA is a protection from abuse here in Kansas. People, it's, it's not 
getting a PFA filed, it's not like, oh, boom, super easy. Trust me, been there, done that. First of all, it's a humiliating experience where you have to outline everything that has happened to you. You have to be sworn in by a judge. You have to provide proof of what has occurred to you. And you have to keep going back. You get a short term and then you have to continue to go back to maintain it. But you have to provide proof. You can't just say, I need a PFA because this is a really mean and this is a really bad person and they hurt my feelings. That isn't how it works. I don't know how it works in other states as well or as much. Let me put it that way. But I can tell you from personal experience that a PFA in the state of Kansas, especially in Sedgwick County, isn't an easy thing to obtain. It is they do try to ensure that it's not something that somebody can just willy-nilly go out and do and ruin another person's reputation. But let me just throw in a little addendum here. If, let's say, the other person you're trying to file it against seems to be waffling on their quote-unquote home address, um, law enforcement in some of the smaller towns, I won't say it about Wichita, but let's say you're serving it out of Wichita and you're serving it into a smaller town, let's just say something like Newton, um, and they're trying to do so, if they're trying to find the person and the person is being untruthful about their home address and they're doing those types of things, law enforcement isn't going to try real hard to serve it. And if it doesn't get served, the PFA doesn't stand the way it should. And that's where you really need to get a hold of your advocates and make sure you're doing due diligence because then it is nothing more than a slip of paper and it doesn't do you much good. And somebody basically is farting around with the law and it, it's very frustrating. So sorry to go off on a tangent about that. But I do want, again, when it comes to domestic violence and intimidation and emotional and um, psychological abuse, you need to make sure to protect yourself. Now again, I want to state in this case that a person is innocent until proven guilty. However, there was an active PFA against Brenda Leonard. And I want to bring up something about statistics and the Encyclopedia of Victimology and Crime Prevention in the case of lesbian couples. Now, the issue of domestic violence among lesbian couples, it's stated it may be underreported due to gender roles that women are expected to play in society. This violence perpetrated by women, it may be ignored due to beliefs that the male social construction itself is a primary source of violence. So people don't believe female upon female violence really exists in the same way and it's highly ignored. The social construct of women, it's characterized as passive and dependent and nurturing and a highly emotional relationship. The social construct of men is characterized as competitive, aggressive, strong, and prone to violence. So there are forms of discrimination when women try to report other women. Plus they have to overcome the discrimination of homophobia and heterosexism and the belief that heterosexuality is normative within society values and domestic violence has been characterized as between male and female victims only. And especially, I mean, we talk about when this case happened, but then you also have to look at the jobs of these two. Brenda was a bouncer and Jennifer worked at a gentleman's club. So it was very, very 
difficult in this situation. And I think that is a very positive factor as to what could have happened when Jennifer might have had a more difficult time in reaching out for help in the area of domestic violence. Because it sounds like a lot of the coworkers knew there was a problem in this relationship dynamic. Now we've come to fall 2005. Brenda is preparing to be prosecuted for falsely using Jennifer's identification. The law enforcement is hoping that maybe they could use this time to get Brenda to agree to a polygraph. But of course, lawyers aren't going to agree to that and investigators are running out of angles to work in this case. Now, we haven't been able to find what the case ended up working out to with Brenda Leonard in Jennifer's identification, utilizing Jennifer Wilson's identification. I've been trying to look into to see what time she got, how that case ended up, I haven't been able to find anything on that case as of yet. I also checked if Ashley Flowers had anything on that case. There hasn't been anything I could find. Then in June of 2013, Paulette Mattingly, she makes the difficult decision to have her daughter, Jennifer Wilson, legally declared dead. Now she tells the Wichita Eagle about what a difficult decision that was for her because she had continued for so long, holding out hope that her daughter was out there somewhere and she just hadn't come home yet. But time had finally just run out and she knew her daughter would never go this long without reaching out. Then in 2014, the Cedric County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Initiative reinvigorates the case. It's new new people, new eyes, and they try to talk to Brenda. Now, Brenda has already been hesitant from the get-go. She's looking for any reason not to really talk to anybody, but she wants to seem like she's being helpful. So they go to her home and they try to talk to her, and the investigators said that they go to her place and they try to talk to her, and big, tough Brenda, who worked as a bouncer in many a gentleman's club. When the investigators are there, one of them actually lets the word shit slip out of his mouth. And while Brenda, she was offended by his language and she throws them out. But you know what, Brenda? I'm offended by the fact that you stole Jennifer's identity. We may not be able to prove anything else, but we can prove that. And you know what? I find that offensive. But you know what? That's what we can prove so far. Next, they turn to Brenda's friends. And interestingly enough, each group of friends was told a different story by Brenda. One group was told Jennifer has disappeared. Another was told Jennifer was seen in Kansas City by Brenda a few years ago. Another story was that, well, Brenda had just spoke to her and she's up in Northeast Kansas somewhere. Now, several friends would say Brenda would discuss talking to Jennifer fairly recently, quite often. And Brenda, if that's the case, why not encourage Jennifer to talk to her mother? If you are such an advocate of her mother, why not encourage her to do that? So then maybe the police would leave you alone. The only thing that ever stayed the same was that Brenda couldn't be trusted and her stories never stayed the same. Also, these new set of eyes on the case also set their eyes on someone new. That was Brenda's nephew. We're going to use the name Baxter for him. That's not his real name. Now, these detectives have figured out that Brenda, she's super close to Baxter. In fact, Brenda and Jennifer had essentially raised Baxter's stepson. So if Brenda had done something to Jennifer, maybe Baxter might be the key to some information, or maybe he even had a hand in helping her. You know what they say, the family that slays together stays together. 
After some long-term sleuthing, detectives and the KBI were able to locate Baxter. Now, they performed surveillance for a period of time to understand who they were going to be talking with before asking him to come in. And this is something the KBI, the FBI, and most detectives will do at a period of time before bringing somebody in, especially in a murder investigation. I know it shows a lot of times that they just bring the person in and do a cold investigation, but many a time, especially in these type of investigations, they will do and establish a baseline of this person's personality and what we say the wild, how they behave and react in normal situations. So you can establish a baseline before you bring them into an interrogation room. And this is just absolutely brilliant. And even at this point, they have no idea what Baxter's role might be in this. So it's always good to get to know the subject outside of the room first to establish that comfortable baseline. Now, investigators had brought him in multiple times willingly for questions. And each time he was very reticent to answer the questions and seemed very standoffish. So investigators decided to take a new tack. Now, there is a form of polygraphy termed geographical polygraphy. The setup is the basic for a regular polygraph. But in addition, there is a map of the property that the polygrapher or detectives want to know if somebody might be buried or there might be something to do with on that property. And in this case, Jennifer and Brenda lived on a massive property. There was a house, a five-acre field, and a barn. And they had a lot of things besides just time working against them. The polygrapher in this area, um, they will dictate and identify the areas discussed to see if there is deception related to the areas of the property. The polygrapher went over the different quadrants with Baxter, asking if he had anything to do with or any knowledge of anything happening to Jennifer in any of the quadrants listed. Although during the interviews, Baxter denied any knowledge of anything regarding Jennifer in the polygraph, there showed deception on his responses to questions regarding the quadrant B and that was a quadrant involving the barn. Now, even with questions regarding quadrant B, again, that that's what the barn and the failed polygraph, cadaver dogs were brought to that area and nothing was found. Detectives were all the way back to square one. Now, in doing so, now there is deceptions with quadrant B or with the barn and you've got to sit and look back, okay, how wide space were the quadrants set up on? And just because he has deceptions with quadrant B, you have to ascertain, okay, did he have deceptions because he was in quadrant B or something, the incident happened in quadrant B, but she was taken and to another area. So there are a lot of factors you have to take into account with geographical polygraphy. In 2018, the Cedric County Sheriff's Office receives a call from someone stating they have information on the Jennifer Wilson case. And interestingly enough, this tipster shares something that was already familiar to them. It was a tip they've heard already in the past, that Jennifer had been buried underneath the deck of the home. Now, rumors had already been going around about the time that Jennifer went missing, there was work being done on that deck. But this tipster, they have a totally different take than the rest of the rumors. He states he had heard this information from a specific person. And this person told him he helped bury a body underneath a deck. This deck story could have evolved throughout the year. So you've got to wonder, okay, if the barn was in one spot, 
how closely was the barn and the deck within the quadrant? So you have to refer back to that quadrant map. But now they do have someone solid to correlate all of this to. So another search warrant is obtained for the house. Now it's specifically for the house, not the rest of the property. And they were able to do a more thorough search. They demolished the deck and they dug six feet before they finally stopped because they were unable to find Jennifer. But it wasn't completely fruitless. In the sliding glass doors, there was a substance that they thought maybe it could be blood. They sent it off for testing, hoping that that little piece could prove that there was something nefarious that happened on the property. But unfortunately, the sample, it was just too small. Even It couldn't even be proved that it was 100% blood. It was so small. They're back at the start yet again, sifting through all of the tips and all of the rumor mill. One of the other things people kept talking about was a pig farm. Now, when the sheriff's office talked about the pig farm, they spoke to cadaver dog handlers, and I will agree with this, that they talked about you know taking dogs out to a pig farm. Pig farms are a complete no-go. Those areas are beyond a biohazard waste for dogs. Most cadaver dogs also are initially trained on dead pig flesh because it's the closest to decaying human flesh on a cellular level to human smells. We talk about olfactory receptor cells and when it comes to dogs. And that's the one thing, when things break down, things all smell different when they break down on a cellular level on the putrefication process with adipocere and everything else. And pig flesh is the closest thing to human flesh when they die. If you look at the body farms in Tennessee, Rochester, all of that, pigs are utilized first place. Now they have different chemicals, which most um, human remain detection handlers will tell you even they, they prefer not to use the chemicals and would much prefer like band-aids and human flesh and human donations over that or they would rather use pigs so you bring a cadaver dog or a human remain detection dog to a pig farm you are not going to get the results that you would expect let's go back to dogs and pig farms. Now, it would, like I said, it would create an environment of false alerts. It would, and as one of the detectives said, you know, they were told this and he wasn't, you know, didn't really feel like it was a complete agreement on his end. And I would say those handlers were 100% correct. You would create so many false alerts, you would not be able to get a true scientific, yes, you're hitting on human remains at a pig farm. It, it just wouldn't work. Also, on top of it, the area, as I said, is a biohazard waste. So many things that are dangerous to dogs. I wonder why radar wasn't dispensed independent of dogs in this situation, but... I do know the things that they feed pigs, it could put false radar out as well. Unfortunately, also the discussions of murder by pigs or hogs eating human bones in along with the Jennifer Wilson case have been kicked to me several times. And I will tell you that can occur. It's 100% correct. They do have an issue with larger bones. However, they will just gnash at them until they can chew and devour them. I will tell you, it requires about 16 pigs to devour one full-sized human. 16 pigs can devour a 200-pound man in eight minutes. That's a scientific proven fact. What that means is one pig can consume two pounds of uncooked flesh every minute. Now, if you ask any cadaver dog handler, we are wary of anyone who owns a pig farm. We don't, we just don't trust them. I understand detectives' frustration was growing at this. They knew it was a circumstantial case. 
They knew they couldn't find Jennifer Wilson's body, but they wanted justice. Just because no one was talking and Brenda had misled people for so long doesn't mean that she should just be able to go free. So they rounded up all the information they had and they presented it to the district attorney's office. But the DA's office said without a body or stronger evidence, they refused to move forward. And I agree with this. This is so frustrating. But the DA's office, they want to make sure they get that win because they only get one shot. If Brenda walks on that, they don't get a second chance. If her body is found later and they are able to have corroborating evidence, they can't bring Brenda back in again for another try. So they have to make sure that they are able to convict her on this case. Now, Paulette's mother says she doesn't even care about justice anymore. She just wants her daughter. She wants the ability to bury her daughter in the family cemetery where other family members already are, where Paulette herself plans to be buried right next to her daughter. When Jennifer remains are finally found, she can be buried there next to her daughter. To her, that is the closure she needs. Now, investigators have recently said that they have a promising tip. They're not going to say what it is, but they think they have something. They also said that they're willing to go back and speak to Brenda again. They think she might be living in Georgia. That's where our friends from True Crime B&B come in. Georgia is just a quick plane ride away, detectives say. A murder investigation never ends. And those who commit those crimes need to remember that. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how many hands these cases change. How many different people are on this case. How many people look at it. It doesn't end. They're not going to stop looking for you. Prosecuting a bodiless crime, it's not impossible. With all the advances in forensic science, criminalistics, the advances with human remained dog detection and genealogy, I think this case has a real possibility of being revitalized. One of the forensic investigators says, if it's the last thing that I can do for Paulette in my career, then I know I did something good. The Cedric County Sheriff's Office Cold Case Unit is actively working on this case. If you have any information that would help them solve it and bring Jennifer's mother some peace, please call 316-660-3799. Jennifer's case is also featured on the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP. There are 73 missing person cases in the system nationwide. Of Kansans, Jennifer and Adam Herman's case are listed on this site. Again, if you have any information, any, the smallest scrap, if you know anything about the disappearance of Jennifer Wilson, or if you have ever spoken with Brenda Leonard, and you think you might have some information that might be beneficial to detectives. You can also call the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office at 316-660-3799 or just shoot them an email at coldcasesedgwick.gov. My go from that chapter always reminds me that I need to get you guys to like, share, and subscribe in order to keep these podcasts going and to be able to grow more information on these victims' cases. So please, like, share, follow, subscribe, and all of that junk so that we can keep these cases going forward and find the answer in Jennifer's case and all of the many cases we talk about on this podcast. You can go back to our archives back in May of 2022 and hear the rest of the interview with Sergeant Matthew Lynch. Thanks for listening and be safe. If you
you are a victim of domestic violence or you have been a victim of domestic violence and you're struggling, help is available. You can speak with someone today. They have people available 24-7 at the Domestic Violence Hotline. They have interpreters available in over 200 different languages, English, Spanish, and many more. The number is 1-800-799-7233, or you can text START to 88788. Now, if you're in Kansas, I highly recommend you start with Harbor House Domestic Violence Shelter. They are amazing. They helped me through so much. Their number is 316-263-6000. There is also the Wichita Family Crisis Center, 316-263-7501. Then there is the Women's Network, 316-262-3960. If you're in a domestic violence situation and you're planning on leaving, make sure you develop an exit strategy. If you're in a domestic violence situation, when you're planning to leave is the most dangerous time or after you have first left, it is the most dangerous time for you. That is when a lot of homicides have occurred. So remember, develop an exit strategy and work with these different organizations. They will help you develop a plan, implement it, and stay safe. Remember, you are not alone. There are many of us out there, and we are here to support 